Well, I know we have a lot of visitors here this morning uh, because of the baptisms. Um, one thing you just need to understand about our church is that we're committed to preaching through books of the Bible and doing so in what we call expositional preaching, that is, opening up the text, what is this text saying, and what does it mean for our life. And so we preach through Old Testament books and New Testament books, and right now we're in the book of Joshua, um, which may not be a book you've heard preached through before. Um, We just happen today to be in Joshua 20. Initially, I was going to preach 20 and 21, but as I got into it, I decided just to preach chapter 20 this morning. So we're going to begin by reading this passage of Scripture together. Remember, Paul said, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for us for proof, correction, training, and righteousness, that the man of God might be equipped for every good work. So let's remember that as we read together. Joshua chapter 20, this is the word of the Lord. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge, of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city, and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place, and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they will not give up the manslayer into his hand, because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is the high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home and to to the town from which he fled. So they set apart Kadesh in Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. And beyond the Jordan east of Jericho, they appointed Bezer in the wilderness of the table land from the tribe of Reuben and Ramoth in Gilead from the tribe of Gad and Golan in Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the stranger sojourning among them that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation. Amen. That's the reading of God's word. Now, the first 12 chapters of the book of Joshua, if you had were with us while we went through them, you remember that they were basically, that first half of the book, about how the Lord enabled Israel to conquer the promised land of Canaan under the leadership of his servant Joshua, which is largely why the book is called Joshua. But for a while now, we've been in this second half of the book, and particularly in a section, chapters 13 through 21, where the Lord divided up the land that they had conquered between the 12 tribes of Israel, giving each tribe a portion in the land as their inheritance. And so far, we've looked at chapters 13 through 19, and there we've seen that the Lord allotted a portions of land to 11 of the 12 tribes. 
So Reuben, Simeon, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, and Joseph. And then remember that Joseph's descendants ended up forming two distinct tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh, and each of them also received their own portion in the land. So that means that 12 portions of territory have so far been given to 11 of the tribes with Joseph receiving a double portion. So that's why we've come in chapters 13 through 19. But there are still two matters left which pertain to this business of breaking up the land and distributing it among the people. There are two matters left that Moses had actually given instruction to Israel about before he died. Moses had told them, When they had taken possession of the land, this is back in the book of Numbers, chapter 35, that Israel needed to designate cities of refuge for the manslayer to flee to and cities for the last tribe, the tribe of Levi, to live in. Now today, we're going to look at how Israel addressed the first of those two matters by designating cities of refuge for the manslayer to flee to in Joshua chapter 20. And then next Sunday, we'll look at that second matter in Joshua 21, where they assign cities for the tribe of Levi to live in. Now, while these two matters, designating cities of refuge and cities for the Levites, they might feel abstract to you, they might feel distant from you, like they wouldn't really be relevant to your lives as Christians, But of course, God has seen fit to preserve them in his word. And what we're going to see is that there are important lessons that he will teach us through this chapter together. So let's begin by looking more closely at chapter 20, where Israel assigns cities of refuge in the land. And then we'll draw some lessons from it. Now, this chapter opens with the Lord instructing Joshua to appoint cities of refuge. So you see it very clearly there, verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to Joshua, say to the people of Israel, appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses. And then in verses 3 through 6, the Lord reminded Joshua how these cities of refuge were supposed to work. And I want to break that down for you now. So under the old covenant law, The penalty for murder was death. It's very clear in many places, but take, for instance, Exodus 21, verse 11. The Lord said, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. And this was a principle that really was rooted not just in the law of Moses, but went all the way back to a sort of creation uh, command. Back in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, do you remember that the Lord had directed Noah, saying, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. In other words, God established from the beginning that human society was to carry out what we now call capital punishment for murder. Because murder was an assault upon God's image. So putting murderers to death 
was not just a matter of deterrence in human society, but also of justice. Now, this does not mean that God never showed mercy to murderers and allowed them to live. You know, you can think, for instance, of Cain or David as examples of where he did just that. However, his prerogative to do that as God did not negate the fact that he did establish capital punishment for murder as the norm for human societies after the fall. And that, of course, was because in a fallen world, violence needed to be restrained and repaid so that his image in humanity might be preserved. However, as we know, not every killing is murder, is it? Murder is rather killing that is motivated by evil intent. But sometimes one person kills another person unintentionally, without malice or forethought. And in such cases, the person who did the killing does not deserve to die. This is recognized in various places throughout the scriptures, in the Old Covenant law itself, and also in these passages that we are, uh, for instance, Joshua 20, and there are others like it, which speak about these cities of refuge in Israel. So, for instance, one of the passages in the scriptures which deal with cities of refuge is Numbers 35, in particular 22 and following. It's one of five passages in the Old Testament which speak of these cities of refuge. And Numbers 35 describes scenarios where, for instance, someone pushed someone without an enmity or threw something at a person without intending to harm them or accidentally dropped a stone upon someone. It cites all those examples where a person died, but it wasn't a result of malice or intent. There's another text, Deuteronomy chapter 19, particularly verse 5, which also talks about cities of refuge, and it cites an example of how someone might be cutting wood with his neighbor in the forest, and the axe head flies off and strikes the person and kills them. No malice, no intent. And in such circumstances, one person did kill another, but they didn't deserve to be put to death because it was an accident. Here in our text, Joshua chapter 20, another one of these passages which speaks of the cities of refuge, that person is called a manslayer because there's someone who, the text says, killed another without intent or unknowingly. Now, any time that someone was killed in Israelite society, God established a system to bring that killer to justice. And this too is reflected here in our text in Joshua chapter 20. So you see in verse 3 a person who is called the avenger of blood. It's interesting. The Hebrew word there is the Hebrew word goel. You remember that I preached through the book of Luke, or sorry, of Ruth. And you might even recognize that Hebrew word goel. I mentioned it many times in that series. It's the word translated kinsman redeemer in the book of Ruth and in other texts in the Old Testament. And it basically referred to a close relative, a kinsman, who was responsible 
before God to act on behalf of their kin in certain times of dire need. A kinsman redeemer. It's often translated that way. Now, in Ruth, being a goel, a kinsman redeemer, it meant that Boaz was required before God to act on behalf of his dead relative to preserve his line upon the earth and his inheritance by marrying his dead widow and raising up children through her. But here in Joshua 20, you see, being a goel, it meant that a close relative was responsible to try and take the life of the person who killed his relative to bring about justice for his dead kin. So in essence, think of it in those days, it wasn't like there was a a police force in the nation of Israel. In fact, at this time, there wasn't even a king. God gave a close relative the legal right, indeed the responsibility, to carry out the just penalty of death upon those who took the life of another. That's why the person is called the avenger of blood. However, when a person killed another unintentionally, the avenger of blood would still have the responsibility and the right before God to come after them, but they didn't deserve to die. And so God provided a way for them to escape, to find refuge. He appointed in Israel cities of refuge for the manslayer. These were the cities where someone who killed another unintentionally without malice could go to escape being put to death by the avenger of blood. And as the text lays out, the manslayer had to go to the city to speak to the elders at the gate to explain his case to them. And they, if they deemed his case to be credible, presumably, would bring him into the city and give him a place to stay. And when the avenger of blood perhaps came to that city looking for the manslayer, the city would not give him up. It was a city of refuge. Instead, we see that the manslayer would be protected there from the avenger of blood as long as he stayed there. Now, there were a few qualifications to this. In verse 6, you see that it says... The manslayer must stand before the congregation for judgment. Do you see? In other words, after initially receiving him into the city based upon his claim to have killed someone unintentionally, we see that eventually there would be a trial before an assembly of Israelites to determine whether he was telling the truth and if the assembly judged that he was lying and that he had indeed killed someone intentionally or with malice and forethought, then he was to be handed over to the avenger of blood to be put to death, which is the just penalty. This is all laid out in detail in Numbers 35, which is perhaps the most extensive treatment about the cities of refuge. But if it was deemed at this trial that He did tell the truth that he had killed unintentionally. Well, then he was to be allowed to stay in the city of refuge. But it's interesting, even then, the manslayer still faced consequences for killing someone, even though he did it unintentionally, much the same as we see often in our own justice system. 
So as verse 6 tells us, he had to remain in the city of refuge, and you see it there, until the death of him who is the high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home to the town from which he fled. He had to stay in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. Indeed, it's interesting, in Numbers 35, it went on to stipulate something else. It said this, If the manslayer shall at any time go beyond the boundaries of his city of refuge to which he fled, and the avenger of blood finds him outside the boundaries of his city of refuge, and the avenger of blood kills the manslayer, he shall not be guilty of blood. For he must remain in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer may return to the land of his possession. So there is a sense in which the city of refuge became also like a prison for the manslayer. And mysteriously we see that only the death of the high priest would secure his permanent release from the avenger of blood. We should also point out that while it isn't explicitly mentioned in our text, in Joshua chapter 20, other texts make clear that one of the purposes of all of these laws, both the fact that if someone did kill someone intentionally, they were to be put to death, but that if they didn't kill intentionally, they were not to be put put to death, that all of these laws, the purpose of them, according to, again, Numbers 35, where you have the more expansive treatment, is this. You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land. And no atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed in it, except the blood of the one who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell, For I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. In other words, failing to administer justice when someone was murdered in Israel, either by not executing a murderer or not providing refuge to a manslayer, that shedding of blood brought moral pollution on the land which would evoke God's righteous judgment who lived right there in their midst in the tabernacle and later the temple. You see, the laws regarding the cities of refuge were designed to prevent all of that from happening. Finally, after explaining the way that the cities of refuge worked there in verses 3 through 6, well, you see that the author of Joshua went on to Tell us what these cities of refuge were. He identified them. So there were six of them, three in Canaan and three across the river in what is called the Transjordan region. And you see them listed in the text, Kadesh, Shechem, Kariath Arba, and beyond the Jordan, Bezer, and Ramoth, and Golan. Now I want to actually put up a map here so that you can see Where are these cities of refuge? You see the six stars there, three on one side of the Jordan, three on the other. And actually, you can notice even from the map that they were fairly evenly spaced throughout the territory of Israel. In fact, one commentator pointed out 
that you would never be farther away than a day's journey from one of these cities of refuge, wherever you were in the land. And this was intentional, so that the manslayer could have a chance of reaching one of these cities before they were caught by the avenger of blood, no matter where they were in Israel. You can go ahead and take down the map. So that's Joshua 20. That's a summary of what we have in this chapter, namely God's instructions for Israel concerning these cities of refuge in the land. Now, then the question is, what can we learn from all of this? And there are two things that I want to point out in particular. So first, the instructions about the cities of refuge in Joshua 20, as you can probably already understand, they reflect God's perspective regarding human life, and they point us toward a just response to murder in his sight. So there is no doubt, isn't it true, one of the characteristics of our modern American society and this would be true in other Western societies as well, is a devaluation of human life. You know, maybe it's just the inevitable result of the philosophical naturalism that has becoming just increasingly popular in our day. Think about it. If there is no God and human beings are just really the byproduct of the random collision of atoms over billions of years, then human life is really no more valuable than anything else in the universe. Or maybe it's the sort of moral relativism that has saturated so much of postmodern culture, at least regarding certain moral issues. So after all, if there is no God, there is no transcendent moral values, then who's to say what's right and wrong with respect to human life? Such things are really just culturally relative. They they can be determined by the individual or by society as a whole, just whatever they agree upon. Or maybe it's just the pervasive idolatry of individual self-interest that explains some of it. Even human life should be dispensed of if it gets in the way of my individual pursuit of happiness. Whatever the explanation, and I suspect some of these things are factors as well as others, there has been a significant devaluation of human life in our society. And one of the ways this is evident, of course, is our increased willingness to destroy human life in America. We can see this, for instance, in the increased practice of assisted suicide or euthanasia, We don't practice that yet, but as a society, I don't think, but there's increasing support for it. But of course, it's most clearly seen with respect to abortion. You know, according to the estimates of the Guttmacher Institute, about 930,000 unborn babies were legally killed in the U.S. in the year just 2020 alone. Approximately 63 million have been killed since the infamous Roe v. Wade decision in 1973. Just to put it in perspective, that's more human lives legally killed than were killed in both civilian and military casualties in World War II. 
And even those numbers are surely not accurate because California has long refused to collect abortion data and report it to the CDC, at least since 1997. And it's believed that California accounts for more abortions in the U.S. than any other state. Another way that the devaluation of human life is evident in American society, however, is ironically the growing unpopularity and decreased enforcement of this penalty of death for murder. In other words, when a human life is taken, the life of the murderer is not taken as a just punishment. I don't know if these are totally accurate. I'm thinking of our two district attorneys who might correct me after the service, but at least according to one source I saw, Just so far in 2022, there have been 16,200 homicides committed in the U.S. There have been only 10 people executed during that same period. And of those 10, all of them occurred in five states. And I'll let you figure out potentially what those states are. Which means that 45 states have not enforced the death penalty at all so far this year. Our own state, of course hasn't executed anyone since 2006. Now, those numbers are astounding. But they really reflect something about our values as a culture regarding human life. According to one source, 61% of Americans think that when someone murders someone, their life shouldn't be taken. And the big debate is really just whether capital punishment does anything to deter murder, not whether or not what the just penalty of it is in a society. And the fact that an increasing majority of Americans believe, at least in principle, that death isn't a just penalty for murder, it reflects, too, an alarming devaluation of life that has been destroyed. Now, brothers and sisters, I know there are a lot of complex factors that have to be considered in evaluating these issues. I know that specific cases are not as clear-cut as considering the principle in abstract. But nevertheless, there is no question that in American society, we are seeing an increased disconnect between how we view human life and how God views it. For instance, here, even in Joshua 20. But as Christians, you see, we have to share God's perspective on these things. We have to think about human life and its value like he does. And how do we know how he thinks? In the scriptures. And we have to agree with God in the scriptures without compromise, without apology. We are to be those, for instance, who appreciate that human beings are not just cosmic accidents, but are made in the image of God. And so to willingly destroy or to downplay the destruction of human life is a grave offense against God himself. Sharing God's perspective requires Christians, therefore, on the one hand, to preserve what might be called innocent life. No human being is innocent. But to seek to provide 
to preserve human life when others do not. You know, one of the ways that Christians have done this, even throughout the centuries, is by providing care and protection for human beings that society has rejected or left for dead. You know, way back, it's been recorded in ancient history that Christians, for instance, in the Roman Empire, they would go out to those places where parents would leave their infants to be exposed and die, and the Christians would go and pick them up and take them in and adopt them into their family. And today, evangelical Christians have and should promote adoption as an alternative to abortion and and lead the way in taking children into their own families. Another way, though, that Christians ought to manifest God's perspective regarding human life is by acknowledging, yes, the justice and the righteousness of the death penalty for murder in a human society. We shouldn't shrink back from that principle regarding human life. That the one who takes the life of another, his life should be taken. That's the principle reflected here in Joshua chapter 20 by this whole system that God set up of an avenger of blood. Oh, I know that, that Christians, they're not under the old covenant law anymore. The civil laws are not the laws of our land, nor should we try to make them. But when you read the New Testament, what you see is that the New Testament writers look to the civil laws as reflecting principles of justice that come to us because they are inherent in God's character. They reflect his righteous character. So they still tell us what is just and right. And this issue of God's standard regarding the punishment for murder is one of those things. One commentator, Ian Duguid, he put it this way. He said, the application of the principle, it's complex. It's frequently messy. Yet the principle of a life for a life, that someone who commits murder deserves to die in return, is clearly biblical. And one of the ways that we can see this is true, Duguid points out, is that the principle of the death penalty for murder is not only enshrined in civil laws from the Mosaic era, But the globally applicable statement of Genesis 9-6, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. And I think it's true. Whenever a human society in the name of compassion, in the name of justice even, jettisons that punishment for murder, it ends up reflecting a degradation of the value of human life within that society. And so I'm arguing, as unpopular as it might be, we as Christians should uphold a biblical perspective on human life in the face of such degradation by openly acknowledging it is just for the government to take the life of those who intentionally take the life of others. Indeed, I think as Christians, we should actually go a little bit further than this. You know, we saw from these laws about all of this, part of which we see in the laws regarding the cities of refuge, we see that failing, for instance, to execute the just punishment for death in a human society for murder leads to moral pollution of bloodshed in a land, which evokes God's judgment. And as Christians, we should be willing to say, hey, the same applies to our land. So first, 
these instructions about the city of refuge, they plunge us into this world in God's word where we can see his perspective regarding human life and the taking of it. But second, there's a second thing that we can learn from this whole issue of Israel being ordered to designate these cities of refuge in Joshua 20. And the principle, I think, is this. The fact that the manslayer would be freed upon the death of the high priest, it establishes a pattern, a type, which clearly and evidently points us forward to something that would be revealed later on in the New Testament regarding Jesus. You know, as one commentator put it, he said, for Christians, the typological association with the death of Jesus Christ, the great high priest whose death atones for sins, are certainly visible here. And I would agree. You know, as we've seen, the principle of justice regarding the killing of a human being made in God's image is clear in this chapter, isn't it? The one who kills must himself be killed, and the avenger was God's appointed means to carry out that just sentence. But, you know, when you really start thinking about it, do you remember what Jesus said about the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, and this whole matter in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 22? But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. End quote. That's not just me. That's Jesus. And as we see throughout the New Testament, God has appointed an avenger, one to execute his justice upon humanity. Who is it? It is Jesus himself. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for what we have done in the body. All our murderous actions, thoughts, words. And who of us could escape God's judgment on the basis of our own merits? You know, if we're honest, we all know not just how kind of bad we are. (laughs) We know the vileness of our natural corruption. None of us wants all our thoughts and desires displayed on a little screen above our heads while we walk around the day. You remember how Paul put it in Romans chapter 3, verses 13 through 17? And remember, when he talks about this, he started out by saying, all, both Jew and Gentile, are under sin. This isn't just about bad people. This is about all of us. And he says that our throat is an open grave. The venom of asps is on our lips. Our feet are swift to shed blood. In our paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace we have not known. Now we have all polluted the land with violence in one way or another. Though we may not have ourselves committed murder. Where can a sinner go to escape the avenger of blood? Well, you know, we don't have any literal cities of refuge here, do we? But we do have something better. Every sinner has available to them the ultimate source of refuge from the vengeance of God. And his name is Jesus Christ. 
you know, under the old covenant, the manslayer would have to stay in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest or the avenger would take his life to atone for the blood he shed. It was a strange procedure, wasn't it? But the implication is clear. Either the manslayer would, take, would have his own life taken by the avenger, or the life of the high priest would somehow mysteriously be accepted in his place. Only the death of the high priest in Israel could liberate the manslayer from the consequences of his actions. And brothers and sisters, do you see that's a pattern? Under the new covenant, the principle is the same in a way. Either you and I as sinners will pay the price for our own sins at the final judgment when the great avenger, Jesus Christ, executes the divine sentence of everlasting destruction upon mankind. Or we can run to take refuge in Jesus Christ now as our great high priest and his death on the cross will be accepted by God as an atonement for the pollution of our sins. And we will be set free. Free from fear of divine vengeance once and for all. Do you remember those beautiful words of the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 9, 11 through 12? But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood, of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And did you notice the wonderful irony in all of this? In Numbers 35 the city of refuge would protect you from the avenger who is seeking to carry out the sentence of death upon you. But in the gospel, the avenger himself, Jesus Christ, becomes also the place of refuge to protect you from the vengeance your sins deserve. How? By bearing it in your place. If you're not a Christian here this evening, know that your life is polluted with sin, isn't it? And the divine avenger, Jesus Christ, he is coming to execute the sentence of eternal death upon you. Why? Because Paul so clearly put it this way, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Your only hope of escape is to run now to Jesus Christ like a manslayer would run into that city of refuge, repenting of your sins, trusting in him to have mercy on you now. He is the great city of refuge for sinners. Only in his death on the cross can you find atonement for your sins. So come to him today. If you haven't done so already, don't wait any longer. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ to be forgiven, to be set free from the fear of death which is coming upon this world. If you're a Christian this morning, let Joshua 20 remind you afresh that your liberation from the judgment of God doesn't depend upon how good or bad you are being. 
or have been. You've already been bad enough, haven't you, to merit the sentence of eternal destruction, and you can never be good enough to ransom yourself from that punishment. If God were to accept some good deed that you did as payment for your sin, he would be unjust because no good deed that you can do could ever atone for the defilement of your sin. No, believer, you must remember your only refuge from God's judgment, the only reason you have been released and set free from the sentence of death for your sin is something completely outside of yourself. It's the death of your high priest. It's in the fact that God has taken the life of Jesus Christ instead of taking yours. He's condemned, he was condemned, Jesus, so that you could be acquitted. He was executed so that you could be set free. His body was broken on the cross. He spilt his blood there. And that has become your source of cleansing from sin and everlasting life. The avenger of blood has become your kinsman redeemer. So, brother, sister, take this opportunity again, this morning, right? To put off your self-righteousness, self-reliance, confidence in your own moral or religious works, or your despair over how you can never make up for it all and take refuge in Christ alone this morning. Well, in conclusion, you know, it seems like a small matter, doesn't it, this chapter? Tying up loose ends. Oh yeah, those cities of refuge. But I hope you've seen this morning that God's instructions to Israel in Joshua 20 about cities of refuge, they have a lot to teach us, both about human life, God's justice, and about salvation. Well, let's close in prayer. We'll sing one last song, and then we'll be heading over to the gym for baptisms. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love for us, for the fact that you have sent Jesus, who is the avenger, the one before whom every soul will stand on the final day and give an account for their lives, who has become our kinsman redeemer, offering himself up in our place for our sins, to set us free. Lord, we trust in him. We trust in him alone. All the burden of our sin, paid in full, taken away by him. Oh Lord, fill us with a greater love and devotion to him. Forgive us of the ways that we've dishonored him even this past week and help us to live for his glory with greater fidelity. Even today, we pray in his name. Amen.